So, you want to start a nutrition or supplement company. After all, energy bars and healthy snack foods are exploding, right? Here's how the business really works. As told by someone who's been doing it for almost eight years, gained distribution in REI and Whole Foods, and built their own production kitchen. Seeking healthier real food options to fuel their own adventures, co-founders Caleb Simpson and Chris Herbert launched Bearded Brothers to offer energy bars made with real whole foods and organic ingredients. In this interview, Caleb shares how they started, the challenges and opportunities of gaining national retail distribution, and their marketing tactics. Plus, why they're betting heavily on direct-to-consumer sales as a channel for growth. Which means this episode has a ton of killer info, whether you're in the supplement industry or not. by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Caleb, you and your business partner, Chris, own Bearded Brothers brand energy bars, which are made of real foods, minimal ingredients, and are organic. And it sounds like you created these bars originally because you guys wanted something to fuel your own adventures, hiking, running, playing, or just traveling for work. Did you ever plan on turning this into a business, or did you guys just not want to pay like two bucks for glorified candy bars? Um, No, the, the, the intention never was to start out as a business when we first started out, as you kind of mentioned, you know, it was kind of just for, you know, for our own needs, you know, you know, myself as you know, like a rock climber and a runner and, you know, a cyclist, I was always just wanting, you know, healthy organic foods on my rides. And so Chris, the other brother, he, you know, got me into like a raw food diet. So I was eating heavy, heavy, like raw foods, you know, for a long time and, you know, nothing on the market kind of met my needs. So I was constantly creating my own bars. Um, you know, and then there was at one point where, you know, when I lived in Dallas, you know, we were based in Austin now, but, you know, I kind of thought, huh, you know, maybe, maybe there's something here. Maybe I could sell these things. And, you know, just kind of scratching the surface on that, though, as like, it's like, oh, man, this is such a daunting thing. I don't even want to mess with this. So, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I'd been doing this on my own for about two years that we actually um, started looking seriously in, into making it an actual business. Okay. And you started in your kitchen just kind of whipping stuff up and I think it was 2011, right? Yeah. And that, so that's when we officially launched. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So none of the flavors you see on the market right now or anything we were really ever making ourselves, um, you know, prior to that had been really simple stuff, just like, like cashew cookie and like pumpkin spice was one that we made a whole lot, but you know, it's, that's one we have kind of yet to launch because the whole seasonal thing is, a difficult hurdle to do. Um, but you know, when we decided we wanted to bring it to market, it's like, okay, if we're going to do this, we got to come out with some really freaking awesome bars. Um, so Chris and I got to work in our, in our home kitchen and we started off in, um, our first, you know, sample recipes were made like in his apartment. Um, you know, when we took those um, sample recipes and, 
you know, we probably had about eight to 10 flavors to start. And we took those to, you know, all of our closest friends and had this big tasting party. And from that, we came out with like the first four um, flavors that we launched. And we later launched two more flavors. Um, one of them's discontinued now. But we, so now we have kind of five flavors in our lineup. But we started originally started with only four. All right. So when you guys did those uh, parties and stuff, how, you know, like friends will always tell you, oh, this, yeah, this is great. Go for it. You should do it. Like, how did you kind of filter that feedback to see, I, I don't know, to kind of pull the truth out of it? Or did you sample to people you didn't know? Um, it was mostly people we knew, but they, they filled out anonymous surveys. So we got really honest feedback about the bars, um, you know, about what people thought. And you know, we had some feedback you know, and things like texture and like, you know, and it, and it really stood out from that survey, which bars were the most liked. It was very clear from that, you know, which ones, um, you know, people preferred. And so that was really helpful in, in launching and launching the company. Um, one thing that did change from the early stages on is the name of the company. Um, so we originally had a very generic name. We were calling ourselves Adventure Naturals. Um, but we were finding none of our friends would remember the name <laughs> when we'd run into them and stuff. They would ask us, so how's that, um, that bar thing going? What, what was it called again? And like, and so we're like, okay, if nobody can remember the name of this, you know, maybe we should look in a different direction. But for me, I'd kind of come from a marketing background and I would, I'd spent so much time on the name Adventure Naturals. I had the domain purchased, I had the logo designed and like, had started building out the website already. Then all of a sudden it's like people are telling, or we had some mentors suggesting a different name as well. And so all of a sudden it's like, we're having to step on the brakes, take this step back. And I was like, but no, that's the name. <laughs> yeah. You get but, so you know, emotionally invested in something. Yeah, totally. And in, in hindsight, it's like, it was such a good thing. And the name bearded brothers actually came like our wives. So Chris and I no, so he's my brother-in-law and our, so my wife is married um, to his wife and their sisters. And so at two separate occasions, they both suggested the name Bearded Brothers, totally different place, different time. And when we kind of found that out, it's like, well, maybe there's something there. And so that's where the name Bearded Brothers, our wives both thought of it at, you know, separate locations, separate times. And we're like, hey, maybe that's it. And we started kind of telling our mentors and, you know, and other friends and like everyone's like, yeah, that's awesome. And so that's kind of how the name Bearded Brothers came to be. Yeah, it's definitely unique. And it's, it's like you said, memorable, you know. More so than the original idea. So do you guys, uh, all right, you made these things. And then when you were making these and you decided the first four flavors or five flavors you were going to sell, were you going to sell products that you were still making yourselves? Or did you immediately think you needed to go find a commercial production partner? Um, So so we've been making the bars ourselves since the very start. Um, And so we... You know, at the time we started, there was no cottage laws that allowed you to produce from your own home. So we were producing, we were renting space in a commercial kitchen and making them, making them from there. And you know, as we've grown, we've moved moved into bigger and bigger spaces to the point, you know, where we got our own production facility. And so we we've been making them on our own ever since then. There was a brief period of time we had outsourced our manufacturing, and that ended up being just a total disaster because that co-manufacturer did not care about the quality um even though we harped on them about it they didn't want to change their processes to meet our standards so we're like okay well we're pulling it back in house so we we were fortunate enough to not sold our equipment off by that point and so we were able to easily bring everything back in house and so thankful that we did too 
So when you're talking process, you know, because presumably you guys are sourcing all of the ingredients yourselves and picking and choosing, you know, exactly what you want. Um, How, like, what was the differences in the process between the way you guys would make it and this co-packer would make it? Mm -hmm. And so the the biggest difference is just like the actual process of making it. So ingredients were the same because we insisted on it, right? Although they did have some mishaps where they were using ingredient, they said they were using the ingredient we approved, but we know they weren't. So there was issues like that going on, and they weren't mixing the bars to the consistency and texture that we that our customers were used to. So rather than getting this nice bar that's dense and chewy and easy to eat, um, you know, a lot of them had like larger chunks in them. The ones kind of like our chocolate mocha has a little bit more powders in it. So that wasn't getting mixed to the consistency we like. So it had more of a chalky feel to it. And so it was it was just things like that did that did not meet our quality standards. And so like because we are very, very, very meticulous in particular about how our bars are produced. And and so and that's why and that's why we pulled it back because they weren't they weren't meeting our standards. And so um, they lost our business because of it. And now we're able to maintain control of our um, operation again. Does that like doing that all of yourself and and owning all of your own equipment does that uh, potentially limit how quickly you can grow or is that is your growth more dictated by just kind of natural sales growth? No, truly, it actually allows us to be more nimble because we can like say we get a new account in, it's like we can immediately start making bars to that new account rather than like a co-packer. You know, there there would have to be more planning involved. Um, you know, so we kind of have to be, do more forecasting and projections for, you know, what's going to be required, um, for things upcoming. But as when we're producing it ourselves, since we're the only product being produced, it's very easy for us to, um, adjust to new orders and stuff coming in. Hmm. Okay. So the, um, I'm curious because like, I'm, I'm just trying to think like if I were going to make some bars or some cookies or whatever here at home for myself, or even if I was making them for like a party, you know, you have to make a hundred. That's way different than having to make, you know, 10,000 or whatever mm-hmm. your batch size is. So when you guys started to scale from making some for yourselves to a couple friends to actually like having to fill a big retail order, were there any kind of surprises as far as the formulation goes and, and trying to scale it up? Mm-hmm. You know, and really there was not, there was no issue scaling up our recipes, which is kind of quite surprising. I'd heard from, you know, other people with different types of products. That, oh yeah, you're going to have problems, you know, scaling up your recipe. You're going to have to adjust it. But really the ratio scaled up like quite nicely. But we're also, the batch sizes we produce are still pretty small. Like, you know, there's only about 200 bars in one batch. You know, we're not talking like thousand we're not mixing thousands of pounds of product at once like some some other bars are doing so we have a much smaller batch size or so recipe scaled up from that you know bench top recipe that mixed about 12 bars in a mixer you know so scaling that up to like 200 bars in a mixer you know translated quite nicely so you know since we are still producing those in fairly small batches we haven't seen um, much of a change in like how the recipe is i mean there's been changes here there along the way um that we've we've had to make like small changes in the amount of like one ingredient we might put in like you know like a raspberry lemon like occasionally you know like our freeze-dried lemon powder can vary in the tanginess so you might have to make small adjustments um but there's only so much you can do since you know the ingredients um 
you know, are on that back panel. And so you can't put more, you know, if the lemon's like the last ingredient on the panel, you can't put more that it's going to bump it over. So you kind of got to really watch how much you tweak it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Um, I used to be in the beverage industry, so I remember how like the labeling needs to be done in order of, so the ingredient with the highest volume yep. is yep, at the exactly. top and then it goes down. So, uh, the, well, what about, you know, you guys are using a lot of like real foods and I think maybe even some raw foods, which in my mind, I immediately wonder, okay, well, aren't those going to go rancid or bad or, or, um, you know, you worry about mold. Like how do you deal with that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, pretty most most all their ingredients are like they're a very shelf stable product. So like nuts, you know, like put those suckers in a mason jar. It's like they're gonna last forever. Um, and we, you know, we keep um, most of our products like our dates and our nuts, you know, stay stay chilled until they go through production. Then after production, they go through a low temperature dehydration process, and that helps, you know, maintain a long shelf life because of the dehydration process had we not had that dehydration process you would probably have a much much shorter shelf life but we use low temperature dehydration process because like you said most of our ingredients are raw so we want to kind of maintain the integrity of those raw ingredients um, and keep all that nutritional value intact hmm. so for the nuts are you guys are dehydrating the nuts as well or just the, like, yeah the drive yep, everything so everything the finished bar is what's getting dehydrated so you oh. know after all the ingredients are mixed and they're pressed into the bar you know, they, those bars go into a dehydration rack and, you know, they dry for you know pretty much overnight for about 15 hours. And, you know, then we have our finished product that we, that we package in box. And so these are not baked, I guess, or cooked in no, any way? No, they're not baked. They're um, dehydrated at 115 degrees. Do you find that any particular ingredients are more sensitive or do you have, have you had to choose to not use some ingredients you wanted because of uh, stability issues? You know, the... The only issue we've had with stability involved like a bar that's no longer available. So we had we had a line out temporarily called the bold line. It was a savory bar. So instead of sweet flavors, it was savory flavors, and those bars kept sprouting mold on them. But we we could not figure out why. We think we, so. One of the ingredients in there was like tapioca syrup. So we our thought was it had something to do with the tapioca syrup mixing with these other ingredients. But whatever it was, like it wasn't working out. And since we're not this huge giant company, we didn't have the money to pay food scientists to come in and figure out what was going on. So you know, ultimately, we had to discontinue that line. And that particular line wasn't intended to be like a raw, you know, like a raw product, like our other one was. We just kind of wanted to do something new and different. Um, you know, it was a it was a definite learning experience in food science and just you know learning that not all foods you know, just because it's, you know, all natural doesn't mean it's going to be like a shelf stable food. Um, you know, to this day, we still don't know for certain what was causing things to go rancid. Um, you know, pumpkin seeds were another, um, ingredient in that product too. And so we thought maybe it was the pumpkin seeds, but you know, it's kind of like I was saying, like we, we don't know for certain because, you know, we're not, we're not food scientists and we didn't have the money to hire the food scientists either. Yeah, I kind of wonder if it was, you know, like either of those ingredients or even one of the other ingredients maybe was just contaminated in some way before it came in, um, which makes me wonder, like, how? so when you guys order in these raw ingredients, how do you check them or test them for safety before you start batching everything together? So every single one of our ingredient suppliers um, supplies us with a certificate of analysis. So they are all doing... Um, you know, all the lab testing, everything on their end. 
So before that ingredient leaves their warehouse, and it's literally like, you know, pretty much the week that ingredient leaves their warehouse, it's been tested on their end, and they send us their certificate of analysis, a certificate of analysis showing us that ingredient has been tested. And, you know, it gives us um, the data like, you know, yeast and mold and coliforms and, you know, all the stuff that would indicate if there's going to be any shelf stability issues with that product. And, and, you know, and all those certificate of analysis come with the shelf life on that product, which states, you know, like it has to be used on our end before that date um, in order for it not to have any issues with our product. Right. And then so as far as the expiration date on the finished product, you just take the shortest of those and use that? So all, you know, so all of our, um, so we do lab testing on our own bars, not with every batch, but, you know, with our particular recipe, they've all been, you know, tested and confirmed that, you know, they have a year shelf life on them. Um, and so, and that's as long as we use the ingredients from our suppliers within the time that they say they can be used, that's never going to be an issue. Okay. How, how do you source the ingredients? That, that is a challenge sometimes. So like, especially early on. So like, you know, early on we were having to buy the ingredients from like, you know, a middleman distributor, which is buying them from like the farms. And so eventually as we scaled up, we were able to buy some of our primary ingredients, like the dates and the nuts, you know, directly from the farms. And, you know, one of the things that we do that sets us apart from, you know, other bar companies is that we are very meticulous and selective about our ingredients. We're not just going to go out and buy the cheapest organic mangoes or, you know, like, you know, the cheapest, you know, maca or the cheapest dates or whatever it is. It's like we taste them and make sure they blend well with our product before we use them. Um, you know, like our ginger peach bar, for example, at one point we switched from a fresh pressed ginger to a freeze dry ginger. And we probably tried, you know, a dozen different suppliers until we finally found, like a ginger that we were happy with and like the same with our mangoes we've gone through we've you know continually tried other sources of mangoes you know trying to find a better price but it always comes back to this one supplier that has a slightly higher price but their mangoes are just flipping amazing and you know we're not going to change you know ingredient for a cheaper price if it doesn't taste good it has to taste good and it also you know has to work and it has to work well in our product taste good and the price is kind of a non-issue when it comes down to it. We always look for better pricing to improve our margins. Um, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to the taste and the quality of that ingredient. Yeah. Um, in case I forget, I want to talk to you later about, you know, like the different pricing tiers. I've kind of got some notes on that. But uh, mm-hmm. before we talk, stick to ingredients for a little bit, the seasonality, you mentioned like doing a pumpkin spice, which is obviously an October fall type thing when everybody does the pumpkin beers, of which I still have not mm-hmm. found a good one. Um, is it, do you guys do very many seasonal things? And if so, how do you kind of gauge, uh, potential demand for that so that you're not left with something, you know, in January that was supposed to be a pumpkin flavor fall? Yeah, exactly. So we haven't done anything seasonal yet because of reasons like that. Um, since we're still, you know, a fairly small company, we kind of just don't have, you know, the manpower, the bandwidth to figure out the logistics of all that. Um, you know, it's also a challenge with like the distributors. We're not even sure at this point, like how to broach that with a distributor and to get that in the stores. Cause you know, your distributor might pick it up, but then like, how are you going to get that in, you know, the doors of all these stores, if you don't have like a sales team to go out there and make sure that it's getting pushed out there. You now you got guys like cliff bar. It's like, yeah, they're going to push their, 
all their product in the distribution center, then their sales guy is going to go out there to every store, you know, and put in orders for all these stores to make sure it gets out to the floor. Um, but w- one thing we're considering doing, like, you know, later this year, like for this fall, is launching a seasonal product just online. Because um, that's something, you know, that we can predict pretty easily. Um, and even if we do, you know, have any issues with extra inventory, we can run sales through our website to make sure we run through that. Um, so that's kind of like the next step for us in testing testing a seasonal product is to like launch it on our website versus, you know, trying to go through the hoops and everything you have to go through to get it into the stores on a seasonal basis. Yeah. I wonder, could you do a pre-order type deal for that as well? Or is that, does that sort of thing work for a product like yours? You know, that's, that's something I honestly haven't thought about, but you know, it's, it's something that could potentially work. You know, it's kind of like somewhat what we did when we first started in a Kickstarter product, or a Kickstarter project, which kind of funded the business early on. Um, basically, all those were pre-orders for the product we were going to launch. Um, and so I could definitely see, you know, something like that working, and it'd give us a better idea of kind of the size and volume that we would we would get and need to be producing. Hmm. So since that Kickstarter plan, have you guys grown solely on revenues? Yeah, everything has been um, solely, solely on revenue. We've had one small um, angel investment, but you know, that, that investment is pretty much just put, put to use to buy equipment to help with our production. Um, so, and to this day, we still haven't taken on any major investment to help heal our growth. Um, it's one of those things we're working on though, because, you know, one of these things we had these very idealistic visions of, you know, what our company would be when we first started, you know, that, you know, it would always remain family owned. We would never take investment in like, in all these things, when you get into this industry, you see how competitive it is. Um, you know, pretty much every bar company you see out there, you know, I would probably say a good 90% of them have some sort of investment money behind them, except, you know, maybe somebody like Cliff Bar who entered the market super early on. Um, you know, all these other guys that you see coming onto the scene, most of them um, are either in early, early startup or, you know, have taken on some sort of investment. Because one of the struggles that we've had as a brand is, sometimes like keeping our bar on the shelf because, you know, since we are so small, we don't have, you know, all this extra revenue to support stores with promotions and discounts. And so that's kind of a a challenge that smaller brands will see is keeping their bar on the shelf. Like getting in the stores, that's pretty easy. But once you're there, you got to continue to support those stores with promotions so customers continue to come back and buy the product. Yeah. So how do you do that? Like what kind of marketing do you guys do to drive awareness and, and Mm -hmm. hopefully then drive people into the stores? Mm -hmm. So primarily, um, we use demos in a store. So like if you walk into like a whole foods or like an HEB or something like that, and there's people that are standing out there sampling the product, those are people that the brands pay for to be there. That's not the store sampling the product to sell it. It's the brands paying their own people in most cases. Sometimes they'll pay the store to do it, but you know, it's the brands that are paying for that. That's advertising the brands are paying for, um, to sample their product out, to get people to taste it. And that's one of the biggest drivers of growth is getting people to try your product. Um, because especially when they're a product you've never heard of, like you're not like a lot of people are kind of risk adverse. They don't want to try new things. Um, and they're more likely to try new things when, one, they can either sample it or that product is on sale for, like, a really good price. And that's, like, the second thing 
we use to kind of drive our sales is doing promotions and, you know, in stores like Whole Foods, we put it on sale, you know, probably like three or four times a year in Whole Foods, you'll see the product on sale. And that always sees a spike in sales. And generally, there's kind of a general uptick in the overall sales after those after those discounts because that helps new customers come in and try the product. And the hope is that they'll become repeat customers and continue to come back and your overall sales will continue to grow. Yeah. Do you, are you able to track uh, per store sales volume when you guys do a demo like that? Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. We're able to track down like to the day for like for Whole Foods. We are like other accounts. We're not able to do that. Um, there's only certain. So the kind of the way the industry works, like certain certain accounts will provide you data. Others won't. So fortunately, Whole Foods is one of those ones that um, provides their vendors data. So I can look down to this specific day and see how much product is sold. So and that helps me to hold my um, demo demo teams accountable as well. Because if they come back to me and say, hey, I sold 36 bars, you know, I can drill down to that exact day, that exact store and see, OK, yep, 36 bars were sold. Um, you know, so it kind of just, you know, helps hold the team accountable and it helps me to go in there and, and also to see, you know, see if there's been any, um, like, return on that investment kind of long term, you know. So after that demo was done in that store, it did my, do I see an overall lift the next month because of those customers coming back to the store? Yeah. And, and do you typically, from a sampling program, does it Oh, yeah, typically do we do. Growth? I mean, if you, if you don't keep it up, you'll kind of see it. You'll see it fall off. If you don't continue the demos, you'll kind of see it fall off. But as long as you're consistent and kind of doing your product demos, you'll kind of continue to see like a gradual lift in your in your overall sales. Hmm. Okay. So we're kind of jumping all over between marketing That's and problem. sales and stuff. Let's go to sales first. So when you guys first started, uh, how were you selling them? And you know, like, how did you get into those first couple of stores? So when we first started, we were um, predominantly selling in like a few local bike shops um coffee shops and you know like local running stores those were kind of like the main accounts we were in when we first starting out and the coffee shops um have always been some of our best accounts because there's such a high volume of people cranking through you know coffee shops and a lot of the time people coming in there they're sitting down to work for the morning or you know they're on the go they want to grab something quick so like you know, having our bars up by the counter is it's an easy thing to grab. And so you know, coffee shop accounts have always been phenomenal for us. And we had quite a few of those when we first started out. And that's one of the things that I feel really helped us kind of sustain as a brand early on is kind of having accounts like that that had high turnover. Um, so we were in like a handful of gyms as well. Um, a couple of the small, smaller co-op grocery stores in town as well were some of our first accounts. Um and from there, it was just a matter of like, you know, picking it, like taking time every day to pick up the phone and call a store and send samples. And, you know, so we would just look up online, see, you know, what mom and pop stores were across the country and, you know, and just kind of grew just um, being scrappy and just um, getting after it day in and day out. And so and it was honestly easier for us to get new accounts early on because we had extra time um, to go out and kind of do sales calls because we didn't have a whole lot to maintain and as we've grown and gotten bigger it's actually the sales aspect of things have become harder because as you know chris and I, as the owners we're so heavy in the operations aspect of things it's made the sales end of the business like a lot more difficult do you guys still try and do that all yourself 
We do. It's like we're we're getting to the point where we're ready to bring on like a full time salesperson and really help you know grow the brand because we're stretched so thin. We're kind of just don't have the capacity that we need, um, you know, to be reaching out to the stores on like a daily basis, like needs to be done. So that's kind of like the next step in our growth, um, is to get somebody in on our team, like full time, that's going to be doing sales so we can continue to add new accounts after new account. Yeah. So where, what are some of the major stores or even like, you know, mid-sized stores and chains that people might recognize that sell your product? Yeah, so the two biggest ones, most everyone's heard of, Whole Foods and REI. So there's, you know, all pretty much all REIs you're going to find this in. You might occasionally find one that doesn't have them. Um, for the most part, you can walk into any REI and pick up our bars. Um, Whole Foods in California, like the Rocky Mountain region, Southwest in the South, they all carry the products. So we're in five regions of Whole Foods. We're still kind of trying to break into the Pacific Northwest in the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast um, so those are kind of the main ones and a lot of the, like if you have like a co-op grocer in your town, like there's a good chance those guys might carry us. Um, natural grocers is another chain that carries our product as well. Um, and there's this kind of like a smattering of juice bars and stuff like that across the country too, that carry the product. And how are you servicing all of those? Are you going through distributors or wholesalers or is it all direct? So it, it's a good mix. So we're probably about half of our business is probably like shipping directly to the customers and another half of it is kind of all through a distributor. Okay. And when you say customers right now, you're, you're talking about retail customers, you know, like a, yeah, like a running yes. shop or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like a running shop or a bike shop or juice bar, you know, things like that. Yeah. So when you guys first started, how did you know how to price that product or have you had to adjust your pricing over the years once you've added in these layers of wholesale and distributor and retail? Oh yeah, we, we've definitely had to make a lot of adjustments along the way. I think when we first started out, we, we didn't grasp the concept of gross profit margin. <laughs> we were just thinking, oh, percent markup, you know, so we're here we are trying to sell these bars at two ninety nine. then we quickly realized, oh crap, we need to be charging like, you know, they need to be retailed at like three seventy nine, and we got to sell, I can't remember the price now, but you know, we had to up our price in order to actually, you know, make money and run the business. Um, so that was like the first adjustment we made with, Hey, this whole 299 retail is not going to work, even though that's where we wanted them to be. Um, and at that time, our bar was also like two and a half ounces. It was like one of the biggest bars on the market. Um, then kind of later down the line, we're like, okay, like 349 is a lot for a bar. 379 is a lot. We got to get the price down. So we kind of, you know, we chopped like half an ounce off the bar, then got the price down to like 349. But it wasn't it wasn't significant enough. Um, then as time went along, we started realizing, you know, as we're doing these demos in these stores, like the number one complaint we would hear wasn't taste, wasn't texture, wasn't flavors. It was like this is too expensive. And so the next iteration was to like make a slightly smaller bar and drop the price. So we went from like a two and a half. What was that? I can't remember. So we went from a two ounce bar to a one and a half ounce bar. Then at that point, we got our price down. So you'll see them priced now from anywhere from 249 to 279. Um, so now we're kind of right in line with a lot of our competition, like upper end bars in terms of the competition. We used to be pretty much the highest bar price bar on the market. Now we're kind of more in line um, with everybody else. But it took it took time to get there, um, partly just because you know ingredient costs coming down as we scaled up. 
Um, and part of it was just like kind of realizing like most people don't care that this bar is bigger than everything else. Um, and so most people are only looking at the price tag. And so that's kind of why we came to this conclusion. Okay, we got to get our price down, even if it means making a little bit smaller bar, because at the end of the day, people are looking at price, not necessarily like how much is in the product. Hmm. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I was thinking in my head earlier before you said all that, that um, something totally different. One and a half ounces sounds small, mm-hmm. which it would be like what, like 50 grams? In a bar? It's a 43, I think, something like that. Okay. Um, and is that, I mean, to me, that just sounds so small. And like, so what I was thinking earlier was like, okay, the people in the coffee shop, like if I'm going into a coffee shop and I know that I'm going to get a coffee and I need to grab something quick to tide me over, right? Like almost any energy bar, just from having eaten so many of them over the years, like I know that's not going to fill me up. But if mm-hmm. I saw one that was like, look like a you know like a small size of a bagel or something but i knew had all these great ingredients like i would grab that even if it was like five dollars because then i know i'm not going to be hungry again in 20 minutes is that like have you guys looked at doing more meal sized versus kind of i don't know what you call them snack size or pocket size see our our first iteration was very close to a meal size like it was like a two and a half ounce bar um but like that that went over pretty well in the coffee shops. Um, but it didn't translate so much. It didn't translate well to like the retail shelves and whole foods where people are very price conscious and your, your bar is sitting there next to like a cliff bar. That's like a dollar. And you see this bar that's priced at three seventy nine. Um, so I feel like, you know, people are athletes, cyclists and runners. They're more likely to look at like a price per calorie type type thing. They're going to say, okay, well, how many ounces is in here? What's the price? You know, that's how I always looked at it. That's how I look at food when I go into the grocery store. We kind of found out that our assumption was incorrect on that um, because, like, the number one complaint we got, even though it, it, it took more education than we were capable of giving, okay, well, look, yeah, it's a higher price bar, but it's also a larger bar. Your, you know, price per calorie is lower, and, you know, and all this education was involved because at the end of the day, people just wanted something – it was price decent and so i mean it was kind of just a false assumption that we had early on that everybody's going to want a bigger bar and so and that's kind of why we made made all the adjustments that we did oh that's interesting yeah it seems counterintuitive right but yeah totally one of those things you don't know until you get it out there and try all right let's so you guys are in whole foods and you mentioned heb earlier which i think it's like a grocery train right yeah, they're a grocery chain here in Texas, yes. Okay, so let's talk about slotting fees. Do you have to deal with that? Um, in certain accounts, yes. Um, it all depends on every retailer is different. So you might run into a retailer that wants a slotting fee plus the first order free. Um, some retailers are going to say, okay, all I want is you know, the first order for free. And so it all depends. And some of these – and some of the chains um, – require like quite a bit more than that. They'll require a slotting fee plus the first order for free plus you spend, you know, four to twelve thousand dollars in advertising. Um so which makes it really difficult for small brands to get in those doors because there's so much cost involved um up front and you're not gonna see that you're not gonna make that back for like a couple of years. Um just because those fees are so intense. Um and so yeah, so like I said, it, it all depends on 
um, the retailer. Like Whole Foods is actually one of the easier ones to work with um, in terms of getting in the door. So, I mean, that could change since the Amazon acquisition. You know, that's kind of all still up in the air how all that's going to work. Yeah, but when you go into like, there's some retailers that's kind of brutal in terms of the costs involved to get in the door. Yeah. As, uh, what are some of the other issues, but good or bad, pros and cons of working with some of these mid-sized and large-sized chains? Mm-hmm. Um, so some, okay, so some of the pros would be like, um, this, you get a lot of exposure right out of the gate. Um, so there's one chain we've talked to in California. We haven't gone, gone there yet, but like, part of their thing is they put you on promotion. They put you on an end cap, like right off the bat. So people see, Hey, look, here's a new product, try it out. Um, and it's on sale. So you're going to get a lot of new customers right off the bat because they're putting you on promo. Um, you know, others. So whole foods is different in that regard. It's like, if you want that off shelf placement, I mean, you're paying a pretty penny to have that. Um, and so it all, it's, it varies chain to chain. So some chains are going to be very generous, generous with things like that. Others are going to charge you a whole lot of money. So, um, you know, and that, and that's the biggest con to going into any new store is like the cost starting out is, is pretty high. Um, especially when you start getting into the bigger chains that have, you know, like 200 plus stores. Yeah. And when they do the discounting, if they put your product on sale, is the store putting it on sale and taking the cut or, or do they expect you to rebate them? Nope. Or all of that. Any any time you see a sale on the store, the the store is not taking the hit on it. It's always the brand. Um, you know, there's a, there's occasions where the stores might go in half with you to get a really good discount on it. Um, so like the store might say, okay, we're, we'll give ten percent if you give us fifteen percent. Um, and so occasionally you'll, you'll see deals like that, but for the most part, anytime a product is on sale at the store, it's always the brand. Um, taking the hit and it's like you're never going to see the distributor take a hit and you're never going to see the retailer take a hit um it's always the brand doing doing the promotions yeah and so you mentioned amazon and i think you guys are available on amazon and direct on your yep. site so how does direct to consumer fit into this whole sales chain so direct to consumer is actually become a, is becoming a larger part of our business plan um, earlier on, that was kind of just like a back burner thing. We wanted available online, but we wanted to really focus on um, the retail growth. But one of the things we've been finding is like, you know, at the end of the day, once you start giving all your discounts to the retailers and the distributors, it's like your margins get compressed. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, you're just barely able to keep the lights on and your staff paid. So, like, we're starting to look more at moving into the online retail side of thing because we can give a little bit better pricing than you're going to find in like a Whole Foods. And we're also going to have a much better profit margin, which in turn is going to allow us to um, fuel growth on the retail end of things. And so that's kind of our strategy going into 2018 is to, you know, really put more focus on that direct to consumer model because our margins are better and, and we can really start driving the retail growth because we're going to have more cash in the business to do things like that. Hmm. Okay, so let's use that as a way to slide into marketing. So to drive people to your website to buy direct, what are you going to do? Um, one of the biggest plays this year, as you'll, I mean, you might even, you guys might even start seeing this here pretty soon, is we're going to um, go pretty heavy on Facebook, and we're going to be um, promoting like our variety pack. So that's going to be kind of what we use to draw people in and gain them as a customer. We're going to offer like a really good deal on a variety pack of bars, which is 12 bars. And we might even have one at the six pack or a five pack level as well. 
but that's going to be kind of like the entry, the gateway into Bearded Brothers. And, and our hope is that, you know, people coming in, buying this at a really good discount are going to become repeat customers and they'll come back, they'll buy more bars. They might even sign up for the subscription service. Um, but in the past, that's an area we've kind of not been so, so good out in the past because we've never, the traffic we've driven to the website has only been driven to the website. And we've gotten advice since then. It's like, no, that's not how you do it. You know, you got to have, you know, some sort of offer for the people coming into the site or they're not going to stick around. So like that's going to be or something. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a click funnel. It's like, so rather than just landing on the site and saying, Oh, Hey, here's the brand, here's the bars. It's like, you're offering them a really good deal and they see, Oh, Hey, look, this is, you know, $10 off. This looks pretty cool. I might try this. And, and so, and having the call to action really easy as well. So, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to send people directly to a landing page with all they have to do is click add to cart and they're good to go. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting to see how well that plays out because a lot of the stuff we've kind of tried in the past, um, you know, hasn't worked. So we're kind of hopeful this is going to work. Um, the guy we're working with has seen this be successful for other brands. So we're, we're pretty hopeful it's going to work for us as well. So as far as direct to consumer sales, one of the options on your website is they can subscribe and they get, you know, the percent discounts and you guys just ship them, you know, a new supply every 30 days. Is that how long have you guys been doing that, and how's that going in terms of like versus just single orders? Yeah, so we we've been doing that probably for about a year now, and I'd say there's a pretty good chunk of our customers are ordering that subscription because I'd say a lot of the times I go into you know Shopify to see how the sales are doing, you know probably at least half of the orders I see in there are like a subscription service, and I would say a majority of those people are probably been customers that have been loyal to us for the past few years who constantly order anyway and they're probably people that are always waiting for our sale emails to come out and they're like oh well cool now i can subscribe and i don't even have to worry about that and like you know then at that point it's like you know they're they're on auto ship like you know every month to every three months or whatever they set it up for and so then that revenue is constantly always coming in they don't have to think about it we don't have to think about it and it's like this type of deal too that like you know, if like, say we're just doing the sale email thing once a month, they might miss an email. They might miss one of them. They might miss an order. So, you know, the revenue in that sense is like, it's always going to be there. Um, you know, even if they forget to place their order because it's automatically done for them. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're starting to see more and more people um, move to the subscription side of things as well. So it's been going really well for us. Yeah. What platform are you guys using for e-commerce right now? Um, Shopify. And so that's kind of what quite a few people in the industry seem to be using um so there's a lot more there's some more robust platforms out there and eventually down the line one of the things we want to do is i'm not sure what platform can handle this or if it's going to be a custom build but we want to get to the point we can do kind of like custom orders where people can mix and match like the flavors of bars for their custom case because um, right now all our you're know, pretty much all is available is like you know, the individual flavors in a variety case. But, you know, further down the line, we want to get to the point where you can kind of mix and match and customize um, what you want in your pack. So I'm looking at your website too, and you guys have uh, Bearded Brothers apparel as one of the options, stuff you sell. Do you guys sell very much of that? You know, we do. That's interesting you say that. I thought we kind of had that turned off. But, um, well, yeah, so I'm we... I'm not in the shopping cart. I'm just, I'm looking at uh, the... The blog and the news, and there's a banner for it down at the bottom of the page. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that's. I'm glad you spotted that. That's actually supposed to be removed. <laughs> <laughs> Our web designer dropped the ball. Um, yeah. That's. I mean, there there was a point we were doing pretty good, pretty good 
on the apparel, we kind of just in the past year we just for whatever reason kind of backed away from it. It's one of those things we'll probably eventually add back. I think the biggest reason we stepped away from it is because like we were super into like you know changing the styles of the shirts that we had available, so we were constantly having to pay a photographer to update the photo and you know change out the image and all this stuff. And so we actually sold quite a bit of um, t-shirts through our website, so in hats as well. So we'll eventually probably get to a point where we get that back on there and it's going to be, um, you know, but we'll kind of, we'll probably stick with like, you know, like an individual product that doesn't change out all the time. So it's going to be just a lot easier from um, just a sales standpoint, not always having to go out and change those things. Yeah. All right. Kind of back, this is like a quasi marketing and sales. So, you know, you mentioned REI. Man, when I go into REI, there's literally like two rows of just hundreds of different bars. So how do you get your product to stand out there and, and again, like get people to like seek you guys out? Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of goes back to just like our, our packaging. So one of, the, one of the big changes we recently made to it, so like a couple of years ago, our bar, they were pretty simple. I mean, this, even this rendition of the packaging kind of stood out on the shelf. It was really simple. It was just craft packaging with just like the flavor name really small on there. Um, and so, and that kind of stood out amongst everything else that was super flashy with all the colors. Um, but one of the things we kind of saw with that is like people didn't really recognize that we had, you know, five different flavors. All they saw was this giant swatch of craft paper in, in the bar aisle. So the newer rendition of our packaging is, is doing really well. And it's got, you know, it's got bolder colors. We still got the craft look to the packaging, but the flavor names stand out. So rather than see the first thing you see is a brand name, you're seeing a flavor stand out. So if you're on the shelf looking for something new, like, and you see a flavor name that grabs your attention, you know, you're probably going to be more likely to pick that up and look at it versus, you know, going straight to a brand and a brand and sifting through all their bars to find a flavor. Unless of course you might be loyal to that brand. Um, But that's one thing we kind of did this year. I really at the beginning, yeah, the beginning of last year, is change that packaging so the flavor names really stand out from a distance um, in hopes to attain gain new customers just through the names of the flavors. Yeah, I like it. I'm looking at a picture of it now. And yeah, you're right. The, the flavor name stands out much more. And I'm trying to think of like the opposite of that would be like Kind Bar, right? You look at a Kind Bar and it's got Kind real huge and you really yes. have to exactly look at it close to figure out what flavor it is. So Yeah, exactly. And that was kind of like, just our rationale between the new packaging is well, let's put less emphasis on the brand, more emphasis on, you know, the flavor. Cause that's at the end of the day, that's what people are wanting. they're going into the store with a, a mindset, Hey, I want to find a good chocolate bar. I want to find, you know, a bar that's not going to taste, you know, really chalky or whatever, you know, so they're going to be, you know, they're looking for, ultimately people are looking for something that tastes good. And so that's why we kind of started highlighting the flavor names. Yeah, cool. All right, and you guys have an ambassador program with you know some athletes that mm-hmm. presumably preach the gospel of Bearded Brothers. Mm-hmm. What? How do you use that program? And so that's so the ambassador program has always been a challenge for us, and it's one of the it's one thing we're going to actually be ramping up again this year. So right now we only have like a pretty small handful of ambassadors, but they've been loyal ambassadors for quite a while now, and. You know, they're really good about, you know, posting, you know, content related to us, you know, including us in their comments and hashtags and things like that. Um, and so, and 
in one one piece of advice I recently got to um, about ambassador programs is it's like you can't expect every single one of your ambassadors to be outstanding. It's like you it's kind of more like it's like an interview process almost. It's like you recruit all these ambassadors to come on um, to promote your product and the ones that are awesome. Like those are the ambassadors that you keep on and continue sending product because they're the most loyal. Um, and so that's kind of something we're going to be doing this year is kind of kicking back up the ambassador program, bringing more on um, in hopes to find those few that are loyal. Um, and they're going to do a good job of promoting the brand. So right now we got like Mike Wardian. He's a ultra athlete, ultra runner. Um, he's been with us for a couple years now. Um, we got Nick Combs out of Colorado. He's been a loyal guy too. He's a trail runner um, out of Boulder. And so we got, we got a few really good guys. There's another guy um, is a rock climber we have on as well. Um, so we kind of try to diversify our athletes too. So we're kind of hitting, um, hitting all those niches. Cool. And how do you like check their progress or hold them accountable for what they're doing? And then also do you use them for sampling or, or mm -hmm. give them some way of directing people to your website? Yeah. So, and basically all we ask is that they, you know, when they're posting content related to us, like, you know, whether it's a picture of a bar, a picture, you know, at a banner at one of our races or some, or the races we're sponsoring is that they, you know, tag us so that people know how to find us. Um, you know, we, we've give them discount codes as well that they are able to share with their friends. Um, you know, we don't necessarily encourage them to spam that all over their website, but you know, it's more of a thing if they run into people that are interested in the product, they can share it. Um, we send them extra product as well, not just for their use, but also so they can share with friends. Um, you know, like Nick out of Colorado, I've given him extra product before to take to like demo runs for like, you know, shoe companies. And, you know, so we'll do things like that. And, um, you know, like Mike Warding, he's constantly giving our bars out to, you know, friends and people he runs across as well. So we're really supportive of our athletes in terms of like the product we send them. So we send them enough to share with people as well as like, you know, to support their own endeavors as well. Right. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the the business side of things as far as uh -huh. you know how you guys run it and work together. So you have a business partner. How's the ownership? Is it split 50-50 with you and Chris? So it's it's not quite 50-50. It's like we're both big majority owners and it's like you know I'm majority owner because I'm you know currently I'm the only one full-time in the business out of the two of us. So Chris still has another full-time job. Um you know so it kind of limits the amount of time he can put in the business, but we're still very much you know, involved in the strategy of, you know, growing the brand and, you know, and marketing messaging and things like that. Um, so, you know, I'm full-time in the business, you know, day-to-day -day operations, um, you know, even, you know, from everything from big picture to just like, you know, production issues is, you know, what I'm, what I'm there for. And, you know, and Chris and I, you know, work together and collaborate on, you know, coming up with strategies, you know, to continue, you know, growing the business and innovate, trying to come up with new ideas for new products and things like that. Yeah, when you guys first started putting this together, how did you divvy up responsibilities and, and has it run pretty smoothly all along or have there been times when, you know, one person was doing one thing while somebody else was expecting another? Mm -hmm. You know, as with any, any business, you're always going to have challenges and it's like in, you know, I mean, just like in a, even like in a marriage, like communication is like key to a successful business. And it's like, you know, we've certainly had challenges, but it's one of those things that like we, we have to like 
just make sure we're always communicating with each other, you know, on, you know, what, what the other one's doing and what's expected. Um, you know, so like early on, like both of us were very, very involved in like the recipes, um, you know, and I think and earlier on too, it was much easier. Um, you know, he travels a lot for his job. So his previous, previous position, he wasn't traveling as much. So we were very, very, very hands-on early, early on. Um, and especially in like production and things like that. Um, I mean, you know, but now that we have a production crew that's in the kitchen, you know, all the time making the bars, you know, most of <clears throat> um, the things that we to, do together are pretty much revolve around strategy and um, and how to get the business um, continuing to grow. Cool. Hang on a second, I'm skimming my questions. For sales and growth and numbers and stuff, I know there were a couple of things you didn't want to share in too great a detail, but what can you tell us about, you know, the seven or almost eight years you guys mm-hmm. have had the product out now in terms of like volume growth or dollar growth or? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we started out like, I mean, first year in business, we were only doing like 50,000 in revenue. Like, you know, the first three years we like were you know, doubling or more than doubling our growth like year over year, um, you know, and so our growth trajectory has been, you know, just on this, you know, pretty steady path up, um, you know, so we've gone from, you know, just, you know, pretty much like just coffee shops and mom and pops to gaining chain accounts, you know, like we started in one region of Whole Foods and we went to two regions, then we we're in three, then four, then five, um, you know, in our rollout with REI, that started with just 25 stores and their top stores. Then, you know, our sales were so awesome in this 25 stores. Within like a month, he had us pushed out to like, you know, all, you know, 160 REI stores. Um, and so like our biggest growth has come from like gaining the chain account. So, so when you gain like a chain, it's like you're, you're picking up 10 to 20 stores, you know, all at once. Um, and so that's where kind of a majority of our growth has come from is starting to grow into the bigger chain accounts. And, you know, that's the point our business is at is now we have to focus more on like those larger accounts to continue the growth because reality of it is at the end of the day, like the amount of time I put in to gain like a coffee shop, like is almost the same amount of time I'm going to put in to involve till I gain like a 2000 store chain. Um, because they all involve getting your product in front of the buyer, communicating with the buyer, like there's a lot of back and forth. And so you can go back and forth with one store or you can go back and forth with one buyer who can potentially put you in, you know, you know, 2000 stores. And so that's kind of like, you know, the strategy we've been, we've been taking for the past few years is to focus more on, you know, those bigger accounts because they're going to have more bang for your buck. Yeah. It seems like for the smaller mom and pops and onesie twosies that relying on your, distributors or or other wholesalers to kind of help sell it into their accounts mm-hmm. would make more sense but I know I know a lot of times those people are just order takers and they're not actually selling yeah and see and that's another thing too that becomes easy once you're in a distribution center like then your product starts becoming visible to a lot of these mom and pop stores so a lot of the times what we'll see is when we you know like say when we've gone into new regions of Whole Foods like it's in every time we've gone in a new region of Whole Foods, like once that warehouse is activated, like people we've never talked to before start ordering the product because they've heard of us and, the, and they see it that they can get it now from from the warehouse. Because that's one challenge for a growing brand is like, even a lot of these mom and pops, say you communicate with them and talk to them, they're like, yeah, I love your product, but I want to be able to order it from my distributor. 
And like, and if you're not in the distributor, it's like they're not going to carry your product because they don't want to deal with, you know, all these one-off products that they're having to call all these different brands to order products when they can order it from one place. And so it's kind of like the whole chicken and egg scenario too. It's like, okay, well, you want my product, but the distributor won't put me in their warehouse until we're in 40 stores. And so, and that's why, you know, we, when we've gone into like a region of Whole Foods, that's like, you know, 40 stores right off the bat. The, dis- the distributor pulls you in and then you can start servicing all those mom and pop accounts. And so that's kind of, you know, another reason why it's important to focus on those bigger accounts because it turns on more warehouses for you where you can then in turn reach out to those mom and pops more easily to get those, to get those sales. Yeah, it's interesting. I would have thought Whole Foods would have their own warehousing system, but they're, they're not. They're being serviced no. by third-party distributors. Yep, they are. I mean, who, who knows who knows what's going to happen now that Amazon owns them? I mean, they yeah, could move true. towards that. But yeah, they have like UNFI is like the major major big grocery distributor in the nation, and UNFI services all the Whole Foods. So will UNFI or or whichever other distributors and stuff would they give you a customer list for an area? Like, say you go into a new region, can you ask for the customer list and then just start calling off of that? It depends. Like so, sometimes they won't. But um, what I found, if you like, so I've run into some of these account managers at trade shows and just struck up a conversation with them, and then had them turn around and give me a list of customers to contact. Um, others aren't, you know, aren't so friendly. So like, you might reach out and say, "Hey, can you give me a customer list?" And like, they just won't even respond to your email. So it's 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 kind of a relationship business. If you manage to, you know, form some sort of relationship with these. Um, with these salespeople and these buyers on the distributor level, you're more likely to be able to get like customer lists. Okay. So for grocery and stuff, I'm just kind of lumping like Whole Foods and all that stuff into grocery. What like what does Whole Foods expect from a margin standpoint, and then what does mm-hmm. Unify expect from a margin standpoint? So that, that's kind of an interesting thing. So every grocery store chain is going to be different. Um, so like. You know, you'll look at somebody like a natural grocers, which is kind of like similar to a Whole Foods, but on a slightly smaller scale. And, you know, somebody like an HEB, like it's more conventional. So those two, like the natural grocers and the HEB, you know, they'll probably be getting somewhere around like a 30% margin. Somebody like a Whole Foods is going to be getting more like a 40% margin. So it, it makes pricing a challenge sometimes. And so... It's like, you know, so Whole Foods is going to have my bar priced higher than like a natural grocer's or an HEB because they're taking a lower margin. So, but sometimes these stores will get frustrated at you. Well, you're, they're pricing it at this, but we're pricing it at this. Um, and so it's like, you can create this tension sometimes. Um, but at the same time, I mean, oftentimes they do realize that the other stores have smaller margins and it's naturally going to be less expensive. Um, but the distributors always pretty much take a straight line. Um, straight line um, gross profit. So it's like they're, they're going to mark it up, you know, 30 to 35% every single time. Um, but all of these distributors have special deals worked out with, you know, the, the grocery chain. So like every, pretty much every grocery chain is going to have some sort of different deal worked out with UNFI where they're, where they're spaying, they're getting a discount. So they're not going to pay the full markup as with like, you know, you know, Sally, Joe, mom and pop down the road, they're going to pay the full markup. And that's why a lot of the times you walk into these mom and pop stores, it's like their prices are so much higher than like, you know, a Whole Foods or a HEB or a King Supers or whatever it is, 
you know, because they're not getting those discounts that these big guys are. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's something the bike shops complain about all the time with Cliff Bar. You know, you walk into a Walmart and you get a Cliff Bar for a buck, and a lot of times these shops can't even order at wholesale a Cliff Bar for a dollar. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and that's the thing, too. Like, in the bike world, the distributor's markup is really high. Um, and so, and that makes it, makes, it, makes it harder on the bike shops, too, to have reasonable prices. And so, but often that often that comes back to the manufacturer as well having to compress their margin so that distributor can have a good margin and the retail price cannot be just astronomical hmm. so we can blame the distributors <laughs> or the bike shops it, can yes yes in some cases <laughs> yeah. so is it feasible to sell direct to bike shops or would the shipping just kill somebody's margin you know, no, if they're it, ordering like five boxes at a time yeah. or something. And so it, it would compress our margins a little bit, but it's not out of the question for us to ship to bike stores direct. We ship to, we've shipped to some in the past. There's still some we're probably shipping to. Um, but it's like, for the most part, it's like a lot of these bike shops are similar to like the grocery stores. And, you know, they don't, they don't want to be ordering from 10 different vendors. They just want to get it all from one spot. Right. Um, and so, and that's, that's a, that's a big challenge too. As far as the online pricing, when you guys discount, I guess like a promotion is a little bit different than just having a lower price than what you're selling it to stores or what the stores are selling it for. Like, do you have stores ever complain that you're undercutting them? You know, we, we've had that happen. Like, I mean, I can probably count on my one hand how many times that's happened. It's probably happened two or three times. Um, for the most part, I don't feel like our retailers are looking at our website. And I think most people these days know that the online prices are going to be lower and it's not i mean i really don't think online prices um are keeping from people buying in the store if anything i think it kind of creates trial where people buy the product online and they're more likely to buy like one or two bars when they're walking down the grocery store because it's just there um so i really don't think online sales hurt retail sales that much if anything i think it actually helps it a little bit hmm what are one or two operational challenges that keep you guys up at night? Oh man, uh, I would say growth and expansion for sure. Um, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about just you know at the stage our little company is in, it's like everyone stretched in, everyone's like at full capacity. So having the time, I mean, having the time to focus on the sales to grow and drive the business is the most difficult thing for us. And so that's probably the biggest thing that keeps us up at night. It's like, okay, how are we going to, you know, bring on these full-time salespeople to help us grow when, you know, the day-to-day -day, day -day operations are like, I mean, we're just, you know, you know, having, having enough struggle, you know, keeping the lights on and paying the team, you know, versus bringing on somebody else new. And so, and that's where kind of the whole, you know, having, you know, capital from outside investors can really help smaller brands like us where you can bring on people and not have to worry about, um, you know, where the money's going to come from at the end of the day, because you have help and that person can feel the growth. So then, you know, by the time, you know, two years down the line, they feel enough growth where then they can start paying their own salary. Then <laughs> you're probably going to want to go raise more capital to put more money into marketing and, you know, grow the overall brand just from the marketing standpoint of things. Yeah. That's, that's a lot to think about. I mean, I think every small yeah, business definitely. is thinking about because oh, yeah. we're all, all of us are, myself included, you know, we're, we're running like crazy trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to grow without adding expenses. And, you know, people are definitely one of the most expensive things. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, yep. Yeah. I feel your pain. You mentioned Shopify for the platform. Are there any other kind of digital or, or real world tools or resources you guys use to help run the company? Oh, yeah, I would say. So one of the big ones we've been using to grow our email list is called um, Sumo. So they have two different product suites. I think it's Sumo and AppSumo. One of them is free where it's basically like a pop-up window that comes up, hey, subscribe to our email. Um, and they have a paid feature as well that um, that's really useful as well. And we actually just signed up for their paid feature. It's super expensive, but like our conversion rates have gone from like 3% to like 12% wow. with like, you know, the tool that they have on there. So rather than right now, rather than have a standard just like pop up to collect their email, it's it's been kind of gamified. So this little slot machine game pops up and you can enter in your email and win like a percentage discount. And so like, you know, the biggest percent discount you can win is like ridiculous. It's like 75%. Um, and so like people are very incentivized to like put in their email. And so since we've implemented that tool, it's like it's our conversion rate on email collection has kind of just gone through the roof compared to what it was. Um, and that, that's been the most useful tool for us for, in terms of growing our email list which is super important for us because we see the most revenue come in from our online sales when we send out an email blast. So like clockwork, like every time we send out an email blast, it's like we get like a few thousand dollars in sales just like that, um, just from an email. And so when we're inconsistent with our emails, it's kind of when we see, you know, our monthly sales taper off. And so as long as we're consistent with, you know, those, those monthly promotions, we're constantly seeing them, you know, good revenue. And the more our email list grows, the more, um, the more that number is going up as well. All right. Well, so for somebody who wanted to start a nutritional product, you know, whatever it is, energy bars, food, drink, cookies, something like what would be maybe one or two pieces of advice you'd give them? Yeah, I would say one of the biggest pieces I think I would give is like to, to start slow and focus a lot on the direct to consumer side of things, because that's something that's very manageable and it's like, and it's low overhead and like you can get like more bang for your buck out of focusing your energy on like the direct to consumer. Cause like, so like I can spend a day, you know, going out to a lot of stores trying to get my product in the store, which is important, but you know, I can spend a day, you know, working on my marketing plan for my online or, you know, working with somebody that knows what they're doing and drive a lot of sales to my online stores where my margins are better. That's one thing I feel like we kind of really messed up on early on. And another thing as far as like, you know, the going slow, not necessarily like slow, but when you're, as the company is growing, just making sure you're not taking on too many expenses at once or more expenses than you need. Because that's, I think, one of the biggest mistakes we made early on is moving into a production facility Um it was too big for us. And so we, for a few years, we were paying like astronomical overhead. And it's like when that money could have been, you know, spent into marketing or growing the team. And so it is like, you know, growing smart and not like, you know, and, and getting lots of advice too. It's like, you know, when you're growing, like say you're growing from one facility to another, like just, you know, making sure that like, it's not going to be more than you could chew. And like, you know, and, and being realistic about your growth, because more than likely, you're going to be anticipating more growth than you're actually going to get. So I'm um, just being smart about things like that. Awesome. Caleb, man, I appreciate your time. This is a good story. It's good to hear how people get started. A lot of good advice in there. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, man. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation.
Caleb offers a lot to think about, from pricing and branding to direct versus retail sales. Having spent a decade in the beverage industry myself, I can tell you that what you don't know can literally kill you, or your business anyway. Understanding how distribution and margins work is key to being profitable, and Caleb's insight on promotions and slotting fees are things I wish I'd known when I had my energy drink company. The key takeaway for me was their push to grow online, direct-to-consumer sales, but continue using retail to grow brand awareness. I'd like to offer an alternate take on product size though. When Monster introduced the 16 ounce energy drink, it killed every brand using the smaller cans, except Red Bull. They were able to offer twice the product for the same price, which made them an instant success and completely changed the game. Just something to think about if you can't differentiate on price. See if you can set yourself apart in some other meaningful way. Could you prioritize size over something else? There's a customer for almost everything, so see what you can do differently, then figure out how to reach that customer. Speaking of doing things differently, my goal is to interview the brands and people that haven't already been interviewed a million times. I hope you like it, but I'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'm at the Build Cycle on all three. Could you take a second and follow me on your favorite platform? Thanks. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And here's hoping your startup is delicious. Until next time, keep building.